I am Stephanie Sun. And I am Chris Hines, and you are joining us on Devil's Advocate, where we offer up facts and opinions in the format of a mostly civil disagreement for the purposes of illumination, edification, and perhaps even persuasion. In a world that is long on opposition, but short on conversation, we're here trying to bridge the gap. Right or wrong, black and white, personal relationships and social movements reflect our brain's tendency towards binary thoughts and categories. And these categories are only natural, of course. This is evolution's first heuristic, and the issues arise when we as individuals and a society can't move past that. We are here to disagree with varying degrees of civility on issues from the profound to the hyper-trivial. All right, so we've laid that out. And what's our issue today, Stephanie? So today we're going to be exploring the issue of remote tourism. Do you want to talk about how we selected this topic? Well, sure. Uh, there are a few things that would be on people's mind. We're still recording this in the midst of the pandemic where much of the country is either under uh, shelter at home orders or different phases of reopening. Uh, but I have noticed here in Southern California, people are just flocking to the beaches. It is kind of a race to get to the sand and get some sun. Um, and it feels like people haven't been able to see the great outdoors, you know, for months. And for many of them, that's probably true. So this need for a vacation, it seems fairly urgent for many citizens here in America and probably around the world. I agree. There's definitely something satisfying about thinking about a vacation, even if it's on the topic of something kind of as fraught as remote tourism, just being able to mentally travel to different places and think about different experiences. And I'm also interested in it because it's this topic that engages with, with privilege, with voyeurism, and requires examination of a practice that seems like it's becoming more and more of this expression of social class, especially with tools like Instagram now. So I'm really interested in perhaps touching today on how traveling as specifically remote tourism has, been, has perpetuated certain stereotypes of other cultures through how they're represented online. Yeah, certainly. Um, for a lot of people who travel, that's kind of become part of their identity for those who are aspiring or in fact, on social media, or influencers, some of that identity is certainly something that they monetize. And there's, there's a certainly a game of one-upsmanship when it comes to who can post the most picturesque photos from the most exotic locations. And so I think with that context, maybe uh, we are now at a point where we should define what we mean by remote tourism. So how do you understand that term? So I think about remote tourism as this type of tourism that's somewhat off the beaten path. It's more about these exciting different experiences that you can't necessarily find by going to France and seeing the Louvre. Things that, in my understanding of the word, take place in poorer, less developed countries and lean into this idea of experiencing this rural, everyday life as this authentic experience. How does that fit into your understanding of it? Yeah, I, I think it's kind of the idea that, oh, as we uh, travel and try to seek more varied and more unique experiences, there's, there's a calling that these places have, whether it's for the sake of adventure or for the sake of novelty within the, the culture 
or the region or just kind of the pristine, untouched by man nature of some of these destinations that people are, you know, really keen on traveling to. One example uh, to look at is, of course, the historic voyage of the HMS Beagle taken by Charles Darwin to the Galapagos Islands, you know, where he cataloged all of these species and that contributed to his understanding of evolution that he published in, you know, on the origin of species, which is all fine and well, but now that kind of established the Galapagos as a destination for people seeking these unique experiences. It's, it's very remote. It's hard to access and the animals and plant life that you can find there can't be found anywhere else in the world. So of course the human brain values novelty. So where do we end up when we have the means and the resources and the interest? Or we end up, you know, in the Galapagos. You know, that's a great example to start with because it really highlights the tension that I find within remote tourism between looking at the pros of it as this opportunity to discover new things and to learn, to gain a sense of adventure and to really expand your worldview, your worldview as he Literally, that was literally the, the place that inspired the theory of evolution. And then you have, on the other hand, and then you have, on the other hand, remote tourism at, with, with its drawbacks, with leading to over-tourism, leading to exploitation of the native population, leading to an environmental impact on plants and animals. I think of uh, Mount Everest and the, the conquest of the summit and how that went from the domain of the highly skilled mountaineer uh, who spent months and months and months preparing his equipment and training to exist at that kind of altitude where the air is incredibly rare and thin. And now it's kind of uh, just a privilege that can be afforded uh, by anyone who is able to purchase a permit and get a little training under their belt with the help of supplemental oxygen. And of course, um, the Sherpas, who are the native Nepalese who help ferry things up and down the trails for these would-be adventurers. Yeah, and touching on the Sherpas brings into discussion the one of the issues with remote tourism where a local economy becomes dependent on outside tourists coming in and in some way providing a stimulus. So you have issues where being a Sherpa and, and climbing Mount Everest in general is incredibly dangerous and brings with it a lot of inherent risks. But so it becomes an economic necessity for Sherpas to work as guides, as supports for international mountain climbers who come in. And the financial benefits begin to far outweigh the risks, even though the risks are very much still present. And out of, two, out of the 290 people, roughly, who have died climbing Mount Everest in the past century, more than a third of the deaths have been Sherpas. And by comparison, um, there, there have only been 13 American deaths, Americans being one of the leading nationalities of climbers who have attempted Everest. Mm-hmm. And in my opinion, it points to the exploitation of these local workers who become forced by the economic situation in a way to take on this huge amount of risk in order to support their families, in order to give back to their local economy and their local communities. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's also worth noting that prior to the, to borrow a word from our earlier conversation about the Galapagos, prior to the evolution of this kind of cottage industry of people attempting to attain the summit of Everest, Sherpas weren't even interested in climbing mountains. 
they they just kind of adapted through their history um, as having you know lived in these really remote areas at high altitude uh, just and ended up with the capacity to climb these mountains better than most other people in the world. And that's, you know, not because they were practicing it on a regular basis. It's just a consequence of their kind of adaptations and their genetics. So they would not be taking these risks were it not for the many people who, you know, decided that the climbing of the summit was something that they would uh, undertake and, and kind of prioritize in their sporting life. Yeah. And so that combined with, as you mentioned mentioned at the beginning of this Everest portion, over-tourism becoming an issue. When you get over-tourism combined with inexperienced climbers or inex- and in- inexperienced operators, and then the government not putting any kind of regulation or limitations in place, you would, the, the risk is greatly increased and becomes reflective of one of the negatives of, of remote tourism. Yeah, I think it does underscore that, you know, regardless of how the issue is framed, we are, you know, creating problems. Every every time we go anywhere outside of our own homes, we are creating risks and we are creating problems. And those aren't only assumed by ourselves, they are externalized to other people as well. So let's not let's not say that we're biased against people who want to travel. Of course we're not. We are just aware of the fact that all activity comes with a certain level of risk and Anytime it involves other people, well, other people are exposed to that risk as well. So without further ado, Stephanie, why don't we go into the question that we would like to answer about this issue? All right. So our primary question driving this particular episode is, is remote tourism beneficial or harmful for the countries which serve as destinations for these experiences? Yeah. And um, we want to clarify exactly what we mean by harmful versus beneficial, I think, before we proceed. So when I think of something being harmful, obviously, in the example of Mount Everest, you're talking about the people who actually risk their lives in order to accommodate these these Western interests in climbing these mountains. But can it, it can also be more kind of subtle and insidious than that. Um, it can result in kind of the loss of local ways of life as uh, certain industries are replaced by the industries of tourism and it can also encompass kind of the uh, the waste that goes along with travel, whether it's uh, the carbon footprint of using fuel to reach these remote destinations or just the, the, the trash and sadly, the human waste, the biological waste that is often left behind as a result. Exactly. And the only kind of additional point that I want to add to that is when we is to consider that when we talk about beneficial, it's important to look closely at who it's beneficial for. So thinking about tourism as this system of exchange, perhaps financial value in play or in exchange for experiential value, um, thinking about where that financial value actually goes, who it's going to be supporting, who's benefiting from tourism, as opposed to just thinking about the benefits um, in a blanket statement. So yeah. Uh, what kinds of benefits are we talking about? Some benefits include increased awareness of traditions, which perhaps might not have been known outside of that particular area, and in sharing that awareness and cre- creating a greater creating great a greater open mindedness towards difference towards others, and an acknowledgement of the fact that because we live in the time of globalization, these kind of relationships are going to be inevitable in some way. So leaning into the opportunities there in order to make them as 
humane as possible. I think I think other obvious benefits are the just economic impact of tourism. When Westerners come, they often come with money. They often come with a willingness to spend said money. And I think that's where most people would look at, at, at tourism and say, well, of course, it's, you know, a positive for the local economy um, and for the people who comprise that local economy. They can better their lives. They can attain greater means. And as generations go by, you expect that they can put those, those resources that they are saving uh, to productive use in a number of ways. So we'll kind of delve into that more maybe as we start to discuss this. So Stephanie, um, which side are you taking in this argument? I will be arguing the cons of remote tourism and talking about how it is a harmful practice. Uh, I, I suppose that leaves me discussing the pros and my personal uh, perspective that this is a benefit to not only tourists, but to the local economies or the local regions that are visited by the tourists as well. All right, let's hear it. All right, well, say in favor. I want to return to the example of the Galapagos really quick. So I think if we look at Darwin as the first uh, remote visitor to really arrive in these islands and, and popularize them, I think that already illustrates a great example of why this is actually a really beneficial thing. Um, it establishes a, an awareness of the unique species that populated the island. You know, you have the marine iguana, you have the sea turtles, you have all of these really highly evolved plants and animals that exist only because uh, these, the conditions on the Galapagos kind of force them to evolve in really unique ways to survive and thrive in their environment. And so that land has been set aside and protected thanks, you know, in large part to the awareness that Darwin's writings and exploration and the subsequent journeys taken by naturalists and scientists, you know, brought to the area. So I think that awareness kind of is, is priceless in a way. And without it, it's, it's not easy to say whether or not just commercial shipping expeditions would have arrived there and, you know, just hunted most of these species to extinction, which is, you know, what has happened and, kind of remote areas across the world, sadly. Uh, the most famous example of that would be the dodo bird. Um, and, you know, thanks to the people who also see this as, as something really unique and something worth preserving, there's enough money and there's enough momentum behind that to continue to do so and to continue to protect these islands and their resources from the would-be prying eyes and hands of commercial interests. So I think the Galapagos ultimately benefits from... Um, a lot of the, the interest in, in travel that comes from people across the globe. You know, that's an interesting example. It almost sounds as if you're speaking about a, a potential future of remote tourism, because I, I mean, I wholeheartedly agree. I think it's great that the Galapagos is protected and is being preserved as this source of natural wonder um, and as the source of learning. And, but it doesn't seem like, because, of, because that is its purpose or its status rather now, it doesn't necessarily seem that it fits into the remote tourism industry of today. It seems like it, it was saved from that, especially when you touch upon the potential commercial interests. Well, I mean, let's be clear. There are commercial interests, but those commercial interests are kind of governed by the same bodies that protect it. So if you want to go tour the Galapagos, you have to get on the waiting list. You have to pay a lot of money. And that money, of course, goes to cover the costs of your travel, but also 
the portion of it goes towards, you know, protecting and understanding and further research into different, uh, you know, kinds of life, the diversity of life that inhabits the island. It's hard to think of somewhere more remote as well than the Galapagos sitting in the middle of the ocean, uh, really isolated from from any other landmass. Well, I have a thought about a place that is just as remote, if not more so. But first, I actually just want to ask a clarifying question, which perhaps will reveal my lack of knowledge about the Galapagos. Is there a native people that lives there? Do you know? No, no. And that's why it was so unique. Uh, that's why Darwin was so interested in it, because these species had evolved without any of the predations that would come from both people who might hunt them for sustenance, as well as pressures to domesticate certain species. So uh, it is as, well, it was as pristine and, and untouched a location as one could find. Well, I imagine that Antarctica used to be pristine and remote. And now, similar to, to Everest, it's running the risk of potentially being over-touristed to make a verb of that. So where it was once accessible to only well-funded explorers, it's now edging towards the mainstream and it still requires a certain level of financial privilege to ask to, to, ac- to access. I like that. Edging towards the mainstream. Like, do the scientists who were there 30 years ago think, I was into Antarctica before it was cool. <laughs> yeah, the hipster scientist population has made way for the, the yeah. tourist. Yeah, they have to comb the ice out of their beard before they look down their nose at people. Yeah, so so similar to the Galapagos, obviously Antarctica is not not ruled not not ruled by any particular government. So no individual government has the power to maintain or create a set of rules about how tourism in Antarctica can be run, um, which leads it up to kind of a system of bodies which came together to form the Antarctic Treaty System, which lays down some ground rules for for how. People are allowed to interact in Antarctica, but for the most part, the day-to-day tourism that takes place there is regulated by tour operators um, and based on goodwill, which isn't something that necessarily seems like it could last forever. So thinking about Antarctica, it seems like it's an example in relation to the Galapagos, but a site which did not receive that sense of preservation and protection in which the desire to learn or in some way to benefit from that area, or which in which the desire to learn fell victim to the desire to benefit. I mean, want to consider it. I think again, most of the money from people who are traveling to the Antarctic is going towards the research efforts that are really important in understanding not only the area itself, but in understanding the Earth's climate. Because you know, when you're able to uh, pull out ice cores from that area from those glaciers that are thousands and thousands of feet deep. They are there for thousands and thousands of years old. And you have the records uh, that kind of speak to the history of the earth in almost the entirety of human existence. And it allows us to have an insight into different cycles in warming and cooling periods, um, as well as kind of the immediate impact of the industrial era that we're in right now. And we are kind of spewing carbon into the sky. You're exactly right. Antarctica does provide a lot of opportunity to learn more about the world and to potentially further our efforts to save the climate. But my question, which is perhaps a hypothetical question, is just at what cost? How do we balance the potential to learn 
with the impact on local animal populations? How do we balance the opportunities for understanding our world better with the pollution from the ships it takes to get up there? That seems like a kind of a big question where there is no absolute answer. If we can't just cut off tourism there, we can't just shut ourselves away from the potential to learn. But at the same time, that comes with serious impacts on the environment and the eventual, eventually serious, serious detriments as well. Mm -hmm. Um, Well, in terms of Antarctica, what would those detriments be? Oh, I mean, like the disturbing populations of penguins, of elephant seals, there are already plenty of articles about various animals being impacted, like elephant seals falling off a cliff because of the visitor disturbance or potentially the introduction of invasive species from the hulls of ships or different plants, which may or may not be like stuck in various people's clothing. Just the fact that we're there in that space introduces risk. Right. And I suppose that in the example of Antarctica, you have a hostile enough environment that most species that would, you know, arrive by by ship as kind of a stowaway are really not going to be able to adapt to the environment and survive and establish any kind of niche there that might knock out the plants or animals that already have evolved to adapt there, you know. Contrary to the case of the Galapagos, where it's pretty easy to imagine other species coming in, being able to kind of outcompete some of the indigenous plants and animals that are on the island. But that's not to say, obviously, that that couldn't happen in Antarctica. So I see your point there. Yeah, and you know, I think our first two, or the first couple examples that we've been talking about, we briefly touched on a local human population who's been impacted by remote tourism, and that's a compo- or that's a factor in general within remote tourism that I think is, lends itself to one of the more problematic, as- problematic aspects. So I wonder if we could, we could think about or if we could discuss a topic that, that features remote tourism in an area of the world in which there is a local human population who is participating, exploited, or in some way in the context of, that, of, of the experience of remote tourism. Well, did you have something in mind with that example, Stephanie? Well, uh, I have I have several several that we can talk about. Just seems incredibly important to think about remote tourism as this adventure or experiencing of a new culture. Then there's also there's people who that culture initially belongs to. So I think it would be important to discuss kind of how remote tourism impacts local cultures. And I think you touched on it initially when you talked about the loss of local traditions or local ways of life due to the introduction of remote tourism. I think it's important to talk about the human impact of remote tourism. So I'm going to kind of construct a generalized example and touch on a couple different specific examples as I'm going through. One of the main issues to do with remote tourism, I actually found summed up in this quote by Anthony Smith, the director of the British Film Institute. So he says that tourism places the whole of the visited culture on sale, distorting its imagery and symbolism, turning its emotions loose, transforming a way of life into an industry, a culture. A culture is turned from subject to object, from independent to dependent, from audience in its own right to spectacle. And this quote appeals very much to me because media studies major here. Um, I'm always really curious to think about how voyeurism and how spectacle participates or work together to create an experience And one of the main issues with remote tourism is that it's based on this fantasy. And in this fantasy, it perpetuates cultural stereotypes, systems of power, 
that are already in place and allows people to come in and take advantage of that. So to consider an example that you made before of one of the benefits of remote tourism being the economic boon that it brings to a local community, something I think we need to consider is, yeah, so that that economic benefit we need to think about in relationship to who has control over that industry of tourism. So thinking about an example of Switzerland versus Senegal, whereas in Switzerland, if you if a tourist were to visit, the majority of their money would go back to the Swiss community through staying at local Swiss-owned hotels or buying Swiss watches, um, and much of the infrastructure would be Swiss. Versus in a less economically developed country such as Senegal, where resort hotels are most likely going to be foreign-owned, and the agencies and airlines that you would you would use in order to get to that place would likely be foreign owned and that's already a significant economic flow um, that's not going back to the country that's being visited so on so on that level even the potential benefits of of sharing foreign money into the economy works only at kind of an illusory level in that there is money being pumped into the economy but it's going into the economy of whoever owns the various tourism infrastructures and not necessarily the local shopkeepers or shop owners so at the local level that impact is not being felt yeah so if i hear you kind of correctly just to sum up generally when when people arrive in an area um, from a capitalist culture many times their first thought is going to be entrepreneurial how can i set up a business here. This is a great place. How can I monetize it, right? That's kind of a, a, a buzzy word now, but obviously it's as old as colonialism. So you have kind of the the outgrowth of, you know, if we're just talking about tourism, places like hotels and trinket shops and whatnot that kind of come to serve the desires, the purchasing desires of the masses who will uh, arrive in these destinations seeking experience and a comfortable bed. Exactly, yes. Okay. Well, let's kind of dive into that a little bit more because clearly that's going to happen, um, especially when you have more developed nations who have the infrastructure to kind of export parts of their economy, whether it's luxury hotels or food or, um, you know, road building infrastructure, et cetera, and, and look at what that, I think, brings to these these places. I'm going to, sorry, I'm going to jump across the globe from Senegal to Malaysia. And as a result of tourism, the Malaysian government decided to attempt to nationalize a lot of the tourist industry. So while there is a significant foreign inflow of, of money, obviously that comes from people wanting to travel and, and spend when they arrive in the country, most of the industries that have developed to support the, the tourist economy are owned by Malaysians. Not necessarily for Malaysians. Malaysians are obviously serving kind of the demands of people arriving from outside the country, but they are able to kind of provide for their own as they provide for uh, the people who are there to travel and see and take part in the spectacle and the novelty that comes from arriving in a foreign country. So I think, you know, some of those negative impacts, I guess, can be mitigated by proactive uh, government policy. I agree. That does that does seem like one step in the right direction towards harnessing the economic impact for at least the general better betterment of the country itself. But that being said, I don't know if that or that that doesn't begin to address another harmful aspect of remote tourism, which I haven't brought up or which 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 we haven't kind of discussed yet, but I touched on briefly the idea of remote tourism perpetuating this fantasy 
of a place. So going to India and from all of the research online that you did, you've seen people riding elephants and you want to go and see the elephants and and experience the the rural beauty, let's say. Oh, and the unfettered joy of being on the back of such a magnificent animal, yes. Exactly. So remote tourism has many issues. I just want to tangentially mention the fact that animal abuse is obviously something that is often present in in areas of the world in which remote tourism has become popular. um, And it's become this experience where if you go to India, you absolutely have to ride an elephant or you have to have your your photo taken with a lion etc etc so and I don't want to delve too far into that realm because I think that can kind of go without saying that is wrong and that's something that shouldn't be happening period but just wanted to mention that briefly and then go back to the idea of selling this fantasy and remote tourism leading to the loss of a local culture and lifestyle through the expectation that incoming tourists have of what it's going to be like there and then the economic pressure to meet those expectations in order to continue the cash flow. Yeah. I mean, there we arrive at one of the problems with just capitalism in general, which is that, you know, business owners will over time generally look for the best way to maximize their profit, right? And if an individual, the owner, the proprietor uh, is less than scrupulous, well, then they will probably look to cut corners and exploit their labor as much as possible. And when that labor happens to be an exotic animal, then we kind of pity the life that that poor creature must live. Yeah, that's an unfortunate case. I want to elaborate on that, though, if I may, and maybe throw or further kind of muddy those waters a little bit more. You know, one of uh, another popular tourist destination for people seeking exotic animal encounters happens to be like game preserves in Africa. I believe the son of our president is a noted enthusiast of visiting these game preserves for the, I think, less than tasteful practice of actually hunting these animals. Now let's, let's leave aside uh, the ethics of his actions because I don't think that's helpful in the context of the conversation. For somebody like Donald Trump Jr. to go and hunt animals in these exotic locales, these kinds of safaris, generally these game preserves have to charge a pretty significant fee for people to come do this. It's generally by auction where people will bid on it for the opportunity to come and slaughter an animal. I think that's distasteful, but the game preserves um, operate under the awareness that this market exists and by allowing a certain percentage of the game within their preserve to be taken and captured and killed by people with the the interest by interest hunters they can then take the money that is spent on the auction in purchasing these licenses and actually use it to bolster their efforts to preserve and protect the rest of the population within that uh within that area of land that they have to keep watch over. And that would be from, I think, a far more kind of various threat, which is poaching, and then just the general um, potential for conflict and exploitation that comes kind of in in some of those countries and regions of the world. None of that's to say that, like, we should all be uh, taking up arms and bidding to go hunt lions and tigers in the savannah, but it is to say that, you know, creative thinkers in those areas have figured out a way to take those desires, uh, again, on the part of the tourists and turn them into, um, you know, something that's a net positive for the animals. Yeah, that's an interesting example. It, for me, brings to mind this 
conflict between what I perceive to be a moral issue, but the overarching, more tangible kind of economic impact. That requires a perspective that looks beyond the individual and prioritizes the overall well-being of a population of animals and not just the one. Another example of preservation coming to the, the forefront. I think the, the moral part is a little bit hard to get over. The embrace of capitalism and inviting whoever is wealthy enough and wants this experience to come and bid for the experience. But then you get to the idea of like monetizing experiences, which is what tourism is all about. And this is just one way it's playing out. And I don't I think, think that um, there are many, if any, animal rights activists who are going to be you know standing and cheering for this practice. Most think it's distasteful at best and you know, would just hold up their noses at kind of just the stench of having to basically sacrifice the life of an animal for the, the betterment of these nature preserves. But at the same time, it's also hard to argue with the, at least the motives of the people who have decided that this is a, a way they can protect themselves and fund themselves and their operations. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm curious about what the impact of this kind of system is on the local communities and if it's kind of shifted the ways in which the people who live there or, or are able to to earn a living or to go about their lives and how that kind of comes into play as well. It seems like it's somewhat of an isolated experience. Very much so and I think that the same goes for a lot of these cases that we're discussing, these case studies in um, remote tourism where it's pretty difficult to play apples to apples and say that, you know, what's the case in uh, on the savannas in Africa is going to be the same for those who would sell the opportunity or the experience to ride an elephant in India, right? Those aren't the same things. One situation probably requires a different set of eyes uh, to really evaluate than the other. But I think, I think where we were going prior to this was kind of the human impact, the impact on local uh, cultures yes. and the ways of life in these regions. Yeah, and this brings me back to that idea of voyeurism, of leaning into remote tourism to go to this quote-unquote exotic place and to experience this culture, with this, this culture which might be drastically different than your own, and acting on a desire to see what that everyday life is and to feel entitled to do that. Thinking of an example in which tourists visited an Eskimo village and were invited to see one of the Eskimos butchering a seal behind their home and then invited into the Eskimos' home in order to see the preparation of the meal and to document that. And while that might have been consensual on behalf of that individual Eskimo, it speaks to a larger issue at play, I think, in which remote tourism is dehumanizing and perpetuates this this entitlement in which people feel that it's okay to be intrusive on others' private worlds and to, to and also at the same time encourages individuals to find ways to monetize their private worlds due to the economic pressures of it being financially lucrative to do so. Right, right, and even I think the word lucrative is uh, perhaps a bit strong in this case. I don't think the uh, Eskimo family you know, was suddenly able to go out and uh, purchase a luxury sports car as a result of these tourist patronage. But again, I think by allowing people to glimpse of their way of living, you're also allowing people to care in, in the valuation of that way of living and to perhaps maybe even identify 
with the practices as they are. And so even as you're watching um, in this example of Eskimo family slaughtering a seal, you're probably also asking yourself the question, could I do that if required of me? And as we start to ask those questions, as we start to try to envision ourselves having to take these actions um, as a means of survival or as a means of upholding a, a tradition, I think we also kind of are, are filled with with almost an empathy for the fact that these things are valuable to, to people, uh, that our backgrounds are important to us and we want to, to cling to them as much as possible. And so by allowing those traditions to persist in a world that has kind of developed past a lot of different ways of living as a result of, you know, industrialization, globalization, et cetera, you acquire an understanding, you also acquire a desire to put up a wall and preserve and in a lot of ways, almost, um, I don't want to use the term glorify, but you exalt the way of living by sharing about it. And I think that's that's kind of a tradition in a lot of different travelogues that, that were published when the Western world suddenly decided to uh, go out and see, you know, the different continents during the 17 and 1800s and something that kind of persists today in the you know Instagram accounts of influencers as a journey to exotic locales for unique and novel experiences. You make a good point with the empathy. I, I agree with you on that, but it still, it still seems highly problematic to use a common word of our contemporary time. It seems highly problematic to, to enable these kind of voyeuristic experiences. Just thinking about turning it, turning it the other way and having someone come into our home here in America, the, well, not the seat of democracy used to be. Um, Sorry, that aside, um, the idea of someone coming into our home in the Western world and taking photos of our life and then sharing that online becomes this intrusion of privacy and this expectation of this, this loss of control over our environment and our spaces and our world. And it's such a one way, it's such, it's not necessarily just a one way experience, but it's, it just, it perpetuates these power structures of who's allowed to actually go to this Eskimo village and to take this documentation and then to share it, regardless of the empathy aspect, which I do agree with you is important. The fact that only a certain group of people are privileged to go and have these new experiences and to meet these different cultures and then to take those cultures back to their world doesn't seem right. And I don't know how to fix that, but it doesn't seem like something that we should be perpetuating just for the sake of empathy. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. I think the idea that kind of people are entitled to their own spaces and that, you know, by visiting and allowing foreigners to empathize or whatever with people in their daily lives and their daily customs, it doesn't necessarily improve anyone's life or it doesn't bring anything um, new or valuable to these people that, you know, is somehow going to lift them up to a different standard of living, right? There's, there's no magic fairy dust that comes from people uh, in their adventures across the globe. An example I have of, of kind of something similar is people kind of going and immersing themselves in the lives of, uh, of different people. Um, in different locations is the it's actually kind of a famous story um, of a photographer who went to the favelas the slums in Brazil and he took pictures and photographed uh, the family um, and one particular boy in the slums and documented the conditions in which he lived and and what he had to do to kind of make uh, 
something out of his life and make a way for his family to just survive. And it ended up being published in Life magazine. This uh, this boy kind of catapulted to international fame, and the family received a lot of money and attention from people across the world. And the slum itself was actually eventually destroyed and kind of replaced and built over in, you know, kind of a recognition of the kind of horrific conditions, uh, disease-ridden, vermin-ridden conditions that people were forced to live within. So there is that possibility that while something like that, whether it's uh, the Eskimos in kind of these rituals that would have defined their ways of living or in the slum tourism that kind of exists and still persists to this day, that there is uh, the possibility of actual good being done through kind of the publicization and the awareness bringing that it can, that it can have and that it can engender, I think, a lot of goodwill and positive, you know, pro-social actions. Yes. I think there's something more nuanced. I think I think we can be more nuanced about that the, the example that you're talking about and that idea of awareness seeming like a double-sided coin in that awareness and change to make the lives of that boy and his family in that particular slum better is great and amazing. But on the other side of the coin, you get into this idea of like almost exalting this kind of victimization and maybe exoticizing, maybe fetishizing this idea of this backward country and this one particular example who now everyone can rally around and great, they've solved that particular problem, but that doesn't address the systematic inequities in place there. So it seems like it could almost lead to this this feeling of having resolved the problem and done your part and that being enough. But I think that that is somewhat tangential and gets us into the kind of colonialist mindset of like, we can go in anywhere and fix this country and now it'll be better because it follows our ways mm-hmm. kind of deal, which is not exactly what we're talking about. Yeah. Yeah. There's kind of a white knight psychology at play. I think in that we come riding in with a sword and, you know, are able to uh, slay all of the, you know, figurative dragons that might be plaguing this area. And then, uh, we, you know, we've done our good and we're on our way, whatever the next location is that we need to uh, act heroically in, uh, we'll be there. And obviously, those circumstances are more complicated and more nuanced, as you said, than just a matter of uh, throwing a few dollars at a problem and watching it go away. You know, if if, uh, we find out years later that the dragon, to use the White Knight example, happened to be keeping the sheep population from overgrazing the fields, um, and suddenly the sheep had devoured all of the grass that, that was growing, and as a result, there was nothing there to keep the land intact and you started having mudslides and things. It'd be terrible. People want that want that dragon back. And to continue the metaphor, because I, I don't want to make it sound like we're just uh, kind of being silly here. In the story of this, this boy from the slums, he was, you know, taken uh, to America. He was given medication for asthma. He suffered from asthma and they were able to treat it. People kind of were able to celebrate this, this liberation from his life in the slums. And then uh, eventually he went back to Brazil and kind of just fell back into poverty. It's actually, it's not a great story. It's not a really happy ending. He divorced twice, had too many children to be able to support and kind of let this home that, that he'd been able to purchase with his, uh, his money, his gifts from his benefactors in America kind of just fall to pieces and, 
ended up having to sell it for less than he had paid for it to be built. So it's not a great story. And it kind of shows that, um, you know, our way of solving problems that we think is, again, kind of on our, our white knight on horseback doesn't always really know what he's doing when he arrives at a scene and, and makes a quick judgment about the correct course of action. Yeah, that is a sad story. It seems like it also speaks or potentially highlights just another way in which, as you're saying, like foreign money doesn't solve problems. And that in some in some ways, the indiv- sometimes it can seem like we can overcome the individual problems in not necessarily just third world countries. Um, I don't want to kind of blacklist or make a generalized statement about that. But it does, that the story does highlight almost like the, the systematic inevitability and the impossibility of actually escaping the poverty, the limits, the social limitations without a larger consideration and effort, which almost then just seems to trivialize the entire topic of remote tourism. And it's like the, finance, the outside finances might come in and change one thing one way or the another, but one way or another, but on the whole, they're not really going to impact the overall situation somewhere. They're just going to kind of keep working within the status quo and the status quo will keep shifting to meet whatever the foreign desires are, which is depressing. Right, right. You know, do we want to now kind of say how we feel after having had this conversation about the issue? Where do do you stand? You know, I still still stand pretty firmly on the con side of remote tourism. The examples you brought up, particularly the, the wild animal reserve, were poignant and made me question my stance. Um, I think have complicated the issue for me a little bit more so outside the framework of the economic impact of remote tourism. But but on the whole, I still feel still feel pretty troubled by that industry. And that being said, it's I think tourism itself is complicated. Remote tourism, it's a little easier for me to point out and say this this is harmful. Um, so that's something that I need to think more deeply about still. But on the whole, not a fan of remote tourism. How about you? Yeah. Well, you know I. I had to argue today kind of against my own uh, better judgment. And I think I'm generally in agreement on the fact that it's, it's a pretty problematic industry and practice that even, even for the most conscientious of traveler is going to kind of cut against a lot of things in people's ways of life and in the natural environment of different areas, different destinations and in ways that alter them permanently. And so it's it's pretty difficult, for at least for me, it would be pretty difficult to partake in that kind of travel. But I think it's also worth saying that it's it's kind of fighting a losing battle for anybody to say that uh, people should stop traveling and that if there is, you know, a willingness on industries and countries and locations to accommodate people who are interested in visiting, it's it's not feasible to take away those opportunities, let's put it that way. Yeah, so, you're exactly right. So looking forward, um, I don't know, what, what are some guidelines that you think that people should follow as they decide on destinations to travel to, as they kind of look to explore their interests, whether it be in nature uh, or different cultures? That's a good question. I think there are many opportunities for tourists, for visitors to be responsible about their experience and their impact in an area. A question that I would consider is what type of experience you're looking for. And if you're looking for a quote unquote authentic experience, what that means. Authentic being a questionable word, but to really do some soul searching about if you want to experience the authentic life of a slum in Brazil, why do you want that 
are there ways in which your privilege is operating to allow you to experience that? And if it's something that you truly want to do, how can you do it in a way that's not going to be harmful to the individuals who live there that as best as you can is not, not going to perpetuate the lifestyles there? I think like some steps to take on that is to think closely about where you're going to be staying. Are you staying in a resort that is owned by some American corporation and so all of your money will be going back to America as opposed to going to the local community? Are there guides or tours that you're taking that are locally funded? Can you select locally funded ones as opposed to international ones? There's a way to work with the communities, I think, to set up some kind of sustainable relationship that doesn't just exploit the people, the customs, for the sake of your experience. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think um, can, on some extent, kind of lean on guidelines and, and sayings that have existed in the kind of realm of travel for a long time, one of which is uh, take only pictures, leave only footprints. The idea that as a visitor to a place, you are, you are just that. You are a visitor. Nothing belongs to you, least of all any, any right you think that you have to experience something or to be entertained or to be catered to. Despite the fact that you are potentially paying vast sums of money, that doesn't privilege you to disrupt people's ways of life. I think that's significant to remember. I think we can be more aware of, like you said, the the nature of the businesses that we're patronizing. And, you know, rather than staying at the Hilton, if we go to a country that offers such accommodation, say if you're going to Malaysia, as my example was, um, really look into visiting a place that is owned by locals or maybe uh, an industry that's been nationalized in order to better the lives of uh, citizens of that country rather than foreign interests that, that are just looking to make a buck off of anybody who's uh, just passing through casually. Yeah, and something that can go along with that is it's you can do research on the customs and the culture of wherever you want to visit so that it's more than just a superficial experience of a place. There are ways to look more deeply into the people who live there so that you can interact with them on a level that's not purely one of exchange. Yeah, yeah, and I think there are also ways, uh, there are a lot of groups that offer volunteer opportunities abroad that, that allow you to work kind of shoulder to shoulder with people and to get an actual experience of, uh, of what it means to live um, in, in one of these areas and to experience a non-Western or non-European or even non-Eastern, non-developed way of life. And if that authenticity is the goal that people are seeking, I think that's a good way to go about it as well. And I think another, another point to be made is when you go, uh, don't just think about, you know, the, uh, the Instagram account and the likes and follows that you're going to get as a result of uh, whatever beautiful pictures, which I'm sure can be taken in, in many areas, beautiful and compelling and striking as they may be, that should be no one's objective as they go. And none of this should discourage anybody from traveling. I'm paraphrasing Mark Twain, who said that essentially when you go visit a place, it's it's pretty difficult to expect prejudice to survive in the face of, you know, the experience and the, the humanity that it brings to otherwise distant and seemingly uh, inaccessible remote locations. That's a pretty powerful quote to end on. And I would like to say that, that, while there are certainly uh, problems with perhaps the documentation of these experiences, I think somebody who's uh, had, had rededicated his life to doing these things in a genuinely authentic uh, way uh, was Anthony Bourdain. 
And the, the last show that he worked on for CNN kind of displayed his kind of passion for actually taking part in immersive experiences with people and building relationships with them in these exotic locations rather than just tasting their food and commenting on it and getting some neat footage and then leaving. So I think for people who are interested in this, you could do a lot worse than to watch his shows um, and just how he uh, engages with people and shows a genuine curiosity and how they're, uh, what they, how they experience the world. Yeah. That's an, an inspiring example to think about and something not related to this particular podcast, but I think would be fruitful to include in future podcasts as well. These kind of future directions or like outside resources to think about. Yeah. I don't have anything wise or moving to say. I just strongly agree. Okay. Well, Stephanie, thank you. Nice job today in this oh, conversation. I, I'd say that I, I found your points persuasive and I hope that others do as well. Uh, well, I'm grateful per usual for a challenging conversation and the opportunity to, to rethink my own perspectives and listen to someone else's. So join us next time for an extra special edition of Devil's Advocate Consensus Style, where we're going to select an indisputable topic to expound upon for a as of yet undetermined period of time. And first up, we'll be talking about Starfleet's greatest tale of victory, James Tiberius Kirk's triumph over the triples. I hope you'll join us next yeah. time. And you'll pardon us if that conversation hap- happens to take a detour into an argument about uh, whether the better <laughs> actor happens to be William Shatner in his portrayal or of William Captain Shatner. Kirk or the entire body of work of Nicolas Cage. <laughs> We're going to earn ourselves ourselves a lot of new fans. Uh, those sponsorship dollars are just going to come rolling in. Uh, uh, what, what are you going to buy with your millions? Oh, gosh. I mean, there's a house in our neighborhood, which in one of the upper windows has a cardboard cutout of Riker. I feel like the first thing to do would be one of Captain Kirk. I'm, I'm a little disappointed. I thought you might say a solid gold statue of Min <laughs> to, to create an altar with. A shrine? Well, I mean, why go the shrine route? I could just create two statues of her and have them sitting on either side of the front door. I think that'd really better establish her uh, presence in our home. Yeah, yeah. The question is, would she recognize herself or would she start barking every time <laughs> she saw the two golden dogs guarding the door? Well, that's going to be a mystery. What would you do with the funds? I, I would probably just buy a lot of peanut butter. I'm concerned about the state of the world and I'm very concerned that in a short time may not be able to meet my caloric needs. So <laughs> got to make hay while the sun shines. In this case, the hay happens to be a brown and delicious nut butter. <laughs>